Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. Since our last episode, Mr. Ginn has been out gallivanting amongst the fjords of Alaska. How was that? Spectacular. Yeah. Did you listen to anything while you were out there? As a matter of fact, I did. Um, but the, the main thing that I took away listening-wise was uh, I listened to Enslaved's Eld as I cruised up the Tracy Arm Fjord. Definite life highlight for me. I would think so. Yeah. Wow. Well, I guess in the two weeks since our last recording, uh, you've done that. And I, w- I drove to Raleigh to see a Genesis tribute band. Uh, <laughs> well. There's that. There is. <laughs> No, but really, really great, great trip that you had and a great listen amongst the fjords. Indeed. Episode 10 of Radical Research focuses on what Hunter and I lovingly call Ginkor. And I think that its namesake, Mr. Hunter Ginn, should uh, provide a little background on that, a little context. So sure. take it away. I guess the the appearance of this narrative, at least to to us, as well as the the neologism itself goes back to um, fall of 2005. I was living in Columbia, South Carolina at the time. Jeff was in Virginia, and he and I um, we were a little farther apart than we had been like the uh, the previous years, but we were still um, close enough to get together. And that fall, um, we came into contact with three albums: um, uh, Coheed and Cambria. What was what, that? Coheed is that of Coheed's burning title? It's a really long title. It's number just, four. It's number four. Well, uh, well, it's actually yeah, it's their third one. Um, but it's but burning. It's, um, good Apollo. I'm burning star four. Good. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna in the show notes. I'm gonna you know when I li- when we list the music cited in the episode, I'll okay. list the full title. It's okay. mouthful, and that's what we love. Okay. Cool. So anyway, we, we came into contact with three records, uh, Coheed and Cambria's Good Apollo, um, Circus Sur- Survives uh, Juturna, and Wake Pig by Three. And we were listening to these albums at the same time, and it kind of dawned upon us simultaneously that though these records didn't sound exactly alike, they had a lot of shared characteristics. And in looking at that, it made us go back to earlier records that we'll talk about tonight as well. And we found some genetic links to, to things from the earlier aughts. Um, but these bands kind of brought into focus um, this kind of new modern rock for us, at least. It was, it was not um, so uh, lofty as to be called prog, but it was clever. It was catchy definitely had a, an, an ear um, and an aim for making art, you know, rather than just disposable modern rock. And, and it, just in my personal taste and experience, the term modern rock is sort of a pejorative, but I hope to, to reshape that here tonight. And, and I think, and I think you and I mentioned this at the time, even Jeff and I are, what, we're about 10 years apart. Yeah. Nine, um, and, a half, nine and a half. Nine, nine and a half. Okay. We to get be, to share a decade. We are, yes. We're yeah. about to share a decade in December. It's yeah. It's going to be, yeah, we're going to share for six months. I mean, yeah. we're gonna, man, we're going to rock. We're going to party so hard. But I was so hard. <laughs> but at the time I was 26 you were 35. And I think for the first time you and I noticed that the people that were making records that we liked were actually younger than we were. <laughs> yeah. And that was a, a revelation. I'd never, I mean, I'd never really thought about that. It, it was an upsurge in activity from these young uh, creative bands that clearly had ambitions outside of the mainstream alternative rock world and wanted to say more and wanted to say things more deeply, but still wanted to write really good catchy songs. And about a year later we discovered dredge. And at that point, 
the the Gincor uh, movement was in in full swing. I would say. Yeah, and and I coined Gincor. Uh, you did, Hunter, yes. Hunter yes. was not, you know, egotistical enough to like name this after himself. And of course, I don't think we're even suggesting. Certainly, in fact, I know we're not suggesting that people out there start calling this Gincor as a serious movement. But I, I think what we were, what I, why I came up with that partly was just you were younger. Uh, and I felt that this was a, a much younger movement than I'd ever followed before in music. It just I'm getting older. These bands are sort of, you know, new bands were, of course, younger. But also that it, we, were, we were always struggling for sort of a way to talk about them or to, to categorize them. And, you know, we can, we can say all we want that, you know, categorization is unnecessary and, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't do the bands playing anything, any service to right. categorize. But, you know, it, it helps in conversation and in writing and whatever. And I just kind of came up with this hilarious, what we thought, I would thought it was kind of a hilarious <laughs> in-core uh, because Hunter, I think you were really my gateway into that. And even like a little later, you kind of got me to pay attention to Deftones again because I had taken the White Pony when that came out and then just kind of lost track of them, I guess. Um, right. And now I'm a huge fan and like love all their kind of post new metal stuff or whatever you want to call sure. it. We'll get into them as well. But, you know, I, I kind of associated with the stuff with youth and with you. And so Gincor it is. Uh, you can't just, spell youth without you. <laughs> we amusingly call it Gincor, and uh, and here we are, kind of like coming out to the world with this little in joke, I suppose. <laughs> Musically, not a joke. We we both genuinely love all this stuff, and, and I, I would say this is probably as mainstream as we've gotten so far, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. As, as we were creating snippets, I realized that I was like, I you know. This is far from disharmonic. This is far from 70s obscure prog. Uh, nevertheless, we think it's absolutely excellent music and exceptional music and you know worthy of investigation and sure. more discussion. So here we are. So we're going to talk about Ginkor as if it's a thing because it is in our world. Let's talk about the precursors okay. to Ginkor because you know a lot of people could look at this and say, well, this is just alternative rock or this is just I hear faith no more in this, or I hear right. Jane's addiction. And you, you probably do hear faith no more, and you hear Jane's addiction. Sure. So and I mean, all that's very important. And I mean, I, I think one of the things, if especially if you've been listening to the show since the beginning, which wasn't all that long ago, realize you will notice that Jeff and I have talked on a number of occasions about the eclecticism of the '90s and like this this time of of real bravery and fearlessness when artists in metal and in rock found it acceptable to blend in musics from outside of those realms. And all those fusions resulted in really, really interesting music. In the 90s, like, like sometimes the, the borders between those musics was, was really, really apparent. Like in, in, if you think about some of the cut-up groups from the time, like Faith No More, and of course, like Mr. Bungle, like there was, um, it was almost like an effort to uh, highlight the disparity of the influences, right? I mean, like it, it wasn't necessarily a seamless thing, but that was a, a an intentional artistic decision. But over the course of time, over this passage of time, really between the '90s and the aughts, things were tightened up. Like the the music that we are going to play on this show shows that similar spirit of eclecticism and inclusiveness. But you'll find that the sounds of these bands are much more refined, much more integrated. Whereas in the '90s, things were a little more unwieldy. And I mean, we love the the youthful spirit of all that. But this provides kind of a, 
a direct lineage to those to those bands that we talked about and shows like that natural evolution that has occurred over the course of rock and metal. But Jeff and I were having a conversation yesterday about this very thing, and he brought up a, a very interesting point. And, and I I think I'd thought about it, but but Jeff articulated it in a a really strong way. And I, I'd, if, if it, I'd like you to talk about that a little bit, about the, the decades in rock and metal and what happened before the aughts and then kind of what we see is happening within that decade. Sure. I mean, I'll actually start with the present because like if you look at the, the recent present and I think, you know, the older you get, you know, the, the quicker time passes. And to me, I still... I still think of this as the aughts. I don't even think of it as the teens anymore. You know, right. right now. I just, maybe, right. I, will, yeah, right, maybe right. I will in the 20s. They blend together. Yeah, I will in the 20s. Yeah. But, may, you know, so anyway, it's, it's really hard to, to cast the mind back to the aughts, the first 10 years uh, of, of this new century, and think of that defining sound in rock music, right? I think it's a, a really undefined, unfocused mess, actually. And there was a, a great writer. Uh, yeah. Both you and I love, uh, Simon Reynolds wrote a book called Retromania. And that really is almost the defining element of the aughts is this retromania, this thing where like nothing's new, everything's borrowed. It so is let's, a but, cannibalization. Yeah. But, but before we come back to the aughts, yeah, let's go back and let's, you know, everybody knows what the fifties sounds like. All right. right. The sixties. And again, I, we really want to avoid generalization, but everybody knows kind of what the sixties was about in terms of where rock went then the morphing, the mutations, um, you know, the eclecticism that started to, to bleed into it. Um, 70s, of course, is defined by a couple of very distinct movements. And again, 80s and 90s, I don't, we don't need to get into like what these are. I think anybody that has just even a general working knowledge of, you know, rock history understands what the 80s and 90s were about. So, you know, they, they each have, each decade had it, had its own feel, had its own vibe, had its own kind of movement or movements. Um, and I just really don't think the aughts did. However, history won't be on our side with this. Just because these bands are were not like huge top ten sellers, I mean, right. things like Deftones did well and do well. Um, some of these others we're going to talk about tonight, you know, did they're all they all did okay, and you know, some people remember them. But this was the sound of the aughts for me, and I know for you too. Yeah, this I is remember the one like, movement that we could go that defines that decade, that first decade of this century. It does for me. I mean, it accounts for pretty much all the rock music that I'm interested in in that decade. Right. Um, because I, 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 you know, especially like when, when the aughts turned, I mean, I, you know, as any self-righteous teenager, early 20 something, I hated new metal. I hated modern rock. I just thought it was all garbage, all disposable. I pretty much still think that, but I remember when the, the, the clock turned and we wound up in the two thousands on occasion, you know, I would hear the radio or I would be in a mall and I would hear rock music then. I just thought it was this awful mess. It was like, it was almost worse than new metal. It was like new metal's detritus. It was like everything that like post grunge and new metal had puked up and left with the world. <laughs> that was a sad state. And it was like, I felt really badly for anybody that didn't, that, that wasn't interested in, in music outside of that because it just seemed like a really, like a vacuum in time really. Sure, um, sure, and and I I think Prague. Some people have mentioned that Prague was more abundant in the '90s. I, I I don't think a lot of amazing stuff happened in Prague at the dawn of the aughts. Right. Um, I, but I think if you dig, you'll you'll find some great stuff. Same thing sure. with metal. I I don't think I don't think metal climaxed creatively in the aughts. I think that I think that was probably the, the '90s for. I do too. 
but yeah, so, so for me, like if I look at all that stuff and yeah, I can pick out albums from every year that have nothing to do with Ginkor, but largely Ginkor is the sound of the aughts for me. Yes. And you, yes. same. And here we are. Uh, before we move on, like getting into some precursors, does, does tool fit there? Does Radiohead fit there? What about even system of a down? Like, do you want to comment on some of those? I, I think that, that tool, I think tool is almost looked at, they almost provide a template for bands, mm-hmm. like a, a way of doing business artistically. Um, even if a band doesn't sound like tool, I think tool showed people a way of doing things that they hadn't really thought about before in, in terms of minimalism, in terms of atmosphere, in terms of pacing. And, al- and also I think it's, it's important to say in terms of ambition, because I think that the nineties were among other things in mainstream music, um, a reaction to the ambitions um, of previous decades. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not cool to make really lofty statements. One reason that like a band like the Smashing Pumpkins were, were vilified critically because all the cooler bands and rock music were paring things down and going back to, you know, the basics and the directness of punk rock um, or of, you know, Detroit circa 1970 or, or, you know, proto metal like Sabbath and blue cheer. And, um, you know, tool said, you know, all that's fine, but we can still make, you know, really ambitious um, statements artistically and, and aesthetically. Um, I mean, I think they're, their design aesthetic says a lot about tool and you know in and i think that they made it acceptable again to have aspirations as artists yet radiohead radiohead's going to be i think sort of a a subtext to this episode sure um, because they, they had such a galvanic um influence in the 90s and again and it's it's funny that we should talk about this sort of revolutionary versus reactionary tendency in this in in music because radiohead recoiled against their own ambitions later you know yeah and 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 started making much more modest albums but i mean i don't think it's i don't think it's possible to overstate the influence of okay computer kid a i mean personally for me but i think just you heard it all across rock and metal i mean this was a band that was genuinely reshaping rock music so, yeah, I, I, I think they have a huge place in, in what we're going to talk about tonight. And, and I, think, I, I think once we get into the nine bands we're going to play here, I don't want to say new metal is going to come into it, but I think this is almost, there's a lot of post-new metal here, certainly with the right. Deftones, Fair to Midland, Dredge. Like, those, bands, yeah. those bands began there, and I think even Coheed uh, to some degree. And then, you know, people that know those bands. And Emo. Sure. But people that know all that stuff will say, well, what about System of a Down? And I always felt that System of a Down didn't go far enough for my taste. Yeah. I, I, I never caught into them at all. It's a, it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's one of those bands where I'm like, yes, I'll, I'll acknowledge them. And I think there's some interesting stuff there. And objectively, I can understand that the appeal, but they just, they stuck too close to the silly new metal thing that right. just is always going to turn me, turn me yeah. off and uh, you as well. I think we're ready to get into it. There's really not a, a lot of order to this. Like the first two bands that we're going to talk about were early on and were bands that we actually linked to Gincore after the fact. One is a band that Jeff and I both love wildly. One is a band that I love very passionately. Jeff 
likes them. Um, I think maybe they fell a little out of favor, but um, I think maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because the first band that we are going to discuss tonight is Cave-In. Mm-hmm. Um, Cave-In was formed in the mid-90s in the Boston area, um, named uh, for a Codeine song for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, Codeine Which they was- also covered at one point. Uh, yes, th- indeed. Codeine was a, a band that recorded for Sub Pop in the early and mid '90s, um, called slow. Played in a style that was later uh, uh, deemed slowcore. Um, <laughs> wrote some really great music. If you find yourself um, too happy, I would recommend um, checking out White Birch. And then, um, and then go to the band Low, and then you'll be ready to pretty much <laughs> yeah. just end it all. <laughs> You're right. Hide the uh, hide the razor blades. Um, <laughs> And so they're, they're early, they came out of the metalcore scene, and I think you and I share a, a distant appreciation um, for the first record and, and then for, you know, the compilation, uh, the Beyond Hypothermia. I really want to like until, is it Until Your Heart Stops? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've, I, I used to own it. When I got into Jupiter, I went back to that naturally and um, because Jupiter was just so, just such... Uh, an invigorating and surprising thing to me because I thought I knew what that band was about, but I didn't have any great expertise. And then Jupiter landed uh, on my desk when I was at Maniacs actually. And I, I just kind of popped it in and it, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor the point or like maybe, uh, you know, uh, exaggerate too much, but it kind of changed my world. Would you so, hey, real, real quick, would you mind telling um, our listeners a little bit about your experiences seeing them at uh, CBGB's? Well, oh, I was just going to mention that because when Jupiter landed, they just happened, you know, of course, because they're in generally in the area, the Boston area, they had a lot of shows on the Jupiter tour in New York. I'm not sure if I went to all of them, but I went to three of them. And there was one at CBGB's, there was one at, um, well, two, two venues that I don't remember, one of them being tiny. But CB's was great because, uh, you know, as legendary as that club is, I was never a big fan of going there. I could, I would always try to avoid it. Actually, it just was too hot, too sweaty. And yeah, I know it's a first world problem. I'm bitching about going to CB's, <laughs> but whatever. I'm not a big fan of that that venue. However, I, I respect it. So seeing, you know, getting the chance to see Caven on the Jupiter tour was great, and I, that was the first show I think that I saw by them. And I was still just brand new to them. Jupiter was brand new. Uh, couldn't wait to go. And, um, they, they just were doing stuff with their guitars and I'm not just talking. I, re- I remember you telling me that yeah. it seemed like their guitars were fused to their bodies. It, it, it was like they were limbs and right. they weren't as violent with them as say a Dillinger escape plan or something. And they were, you know, musically performance wise, they were great on the guitars. It was really what they were doing with the motion of the music and the, the riffs and just kind of like winging these things around kind of dangerously and in, in rhythm to the music. It was, it was kind of like, unlike anything I'd really seen. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like in tandem, like a Judas priest or a kiss or something. It was right. Yeah. It was, it was just very natural and kind of un, unplanned and on stage, but this was what they were doing. And it just, it, there was a visual aspect to it that I just th- thought was amazing. And yeah, it did make me think of them as extra limbs, uh, but they blew me away. So yeah, I was really glad to get get to see them three times on that tour. That's the only times I'd really seen them. And I know you, I know you attempted to see Cave in a few times. And <laughs> I don't it always I'll, ended I'll, in some I'll, I'll, Okay, so my my, my history um, uh, with with trying to see Cave in live is fraught. But I, I went gonna, bowling with gonna, you one night that we were supposed to see them. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> only going to mention one time. Yeah, okay, which means that I have tried to see them multiple times. <laughs> but, but one time was especially funny. It is now, in retrospect, at least. It was in 2004. They were touring for Antenna, 
and um, Jeff and my our, our good friend Tim and I went up to um, to Winston Salem uh, to to see them. They were playing at they were going to play at um, what was that place in Winston? Uh, you saw Man of War and Opeth there. Ziggy's. 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 Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we we get to Winston. We're at dinner eating pizza. And we get wind that the show has been canceled because Adam McGrath's mother had gotten into the pit the night before and broken her elbow. Okay. So I wasn't able to see cave in because the mother of one of the guitarists got a, got a a joint broken in a pit the night before (laughs) this says anything about my luck with cave in. (laughs) Anyway, we, we wound up going bowling and we, um, did a, um, a thrash lane and a doom lane to see right. who could get the most pins going the fastest and the slowest. So right. the, the night was like not without merit, but still. We tried to salvage it. Right. Yeah. As best we could. But anyway. <laughs> but, but yeah, so Jupiter was my introduction to this band. And, and because of you and Ryan Downey and then, and, and I guess Craig to some extent too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I found the things that you guys had to say about it really compelling. Not a band that I paid any attention to. I was never, a, I, I, I like botch, but for the most part, I'm, I'm not all that enthusiastic about the Hydrahead catalog. So, that, I mean, there was, there was no real reason for me to check out this band. And I, um, I bought, uh, I got it from Metal Disc. I ordered it from Metal Disc, along with some other things, and um, put it in, and it just it, like immediately just blew me away. Yeah, I, I mean, I had the same reaction. I knew what they were. I kind of just knew from other people what this band was about. So I put in Jupiter. And I thought, well, wait a minute, this is not the Cave, and I've been hearing about. They don't fit into what I where I've been reading their name, and it just it just a very progressive, forward thinking, you know, record, and kind of a yeah. kind of a great one to usher in the two thousands. It is, and it complete. It almost like totally jettisons all the hardcore elements. I would say there's a little tiny bit of that in the song "Big Riff." Yes, um, but for for the most part, you hear the strong influence of Radiohead. Um, anybody who knows the band Failure, and if you don't, you absolutely should. They're a favorite of mine. Hear a lot of Failure. I always heard a ton of hum in um, in Cave In, mm-hmm. especially the album uh, Downward Is Heavenward. So, like you, you're seeing, I, and I, I think you know these guys had really strong roots in sort of the experimental alternative rock of the mid and late '90s, and you hear all that kind of come into full bloom on Jupiter. Yeah, um, but there's this this cosmic heft to it as well, and a and a weight to it that that bears mention. Well, let's um, check it out. Let's check it out. We yeah, talked so much yeah, about Gincore. Let's. Anything you want to say about it before we go into it? Let the music speak for itself.
And you know, I really like Caven for so many reasons, but I, I think they're just one of those bands. We've talked about this before on other episodes that, you know, all four members bring a very certain personality into the sound. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, obviously the drumming is is certainly uh, already quite Yeah, I mean, yeah, JR's got this awesome kind of like cavernous Bonham approach to things too. Yeah, yeah. Great feel, the, yeah. We've already talked about the guitars a lot. I mean, those are swirling and cosmic and just what? wonderful in this album. They're just completely breaking out into this you know, other other kind of area that they hadn't quite been in before. They hinted at it on the previous album. but well, And too, uh, like we talk about like this cosmic atmosphere. I think it... It um it stands to mention that this record was pretty much recorded live. Yeah, like, there are no overdubs on this record. Yeah, amazing. And and, yeah, it, and that's the thing about them live too. Is it, one of the reasons that all three of those shows numbers, some of my favorite shows I've ever seen, is they were that good live. They just brought that stuff to life in a brand new, wonderful way. That that you know we were all ingesting on Jupiter, and the, and the crowds were like way into it too. I was always curious, like, okay, I'm going to see this band who used to be hardcore. To put it in a very general sense what's the crowd going to be like and like all three shows it was just people really latched onto it were completely absorbing it knew that it was special um we also yeah, have to unfortunately mention- for them i think that's that that's really kind of like their the zenith of their popularity or, or at least in kind of like bridging those two divides um because they were not commercially able to do that on antenna they even though that's a great album that other you know that other mainstream audience oh, it's a fantastic album they opened oh, up Jam on that tour and and um, love it. in certain territories i love it too i love the fighters they went out with foo fighters foo fighters i the uh they did the tides of tomorrow ep which i yep. always wish was a full oh, yeah. so damn good um but i also want to mention the bass tone of caleb schofield and i it's great it's a huge part of the cave and sound and i think it's a it's a bit of a timely thing to mention that he passed uh, a few months Very ago tragic. in a car accident so very sad, but um, this music lives on, and his bass tone certainly lives on. Oh, yeah. Long and throughout, throughout their catalog. Yeah, rest in peace, brother. Let's get into, uh, into Glassjaw. Now, I, w- I want to – probably of all the bands we've ever covered on re- Radical Research so far, I can't say I'm a huge Glassjaw fan. I know you've tried to get, them, get me into them uh, since we share the lo- love of all this sort of stuff. Sure. I, I, I have a, a – a great respect for them. You turn me on to the first two albums and the stuff they put out, I think digitally as EPs a few years ago was pretty impressive. I think it's just the voice, the guy's voice. It's still, I'm not totally yeah, getting enough. it, but, that, but that's yeah. a huge part of Glassjaw, right? Oh, very much so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and I'll say this too, like, uh, like all this music is pretty hooky. Mm-hmm. Like Glassjaw is kind of on the, uh, the deep end of the spectrum here. <laughs> um, they are much more obtuse. I mean, they, they're very, very catchy, um, but you have to work for their hooks. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't reveal themselves as quickly as most bands. They um, kind of like cave in, like they have roots in hardcore. The guitarists, uh, Justin Beck and Todd Weinstock were in a straight edge band called Sons of Abraham in the mid nineties. And the lead singer in Glassjaw Daryl Palumbo was a good friend of theirs, and they decided that they would abscond and uh, join forces with Daryl and start making music. They um, they recorded some demos with Don Fury, um, played a lot of shows, and that eventually led to them signing with Roadrunner in the late 90s. And then in uh, the year 2000, they released Everything You Wanted to Know About Silence, which was actually produced by Ross Robinson. I, I I love this record dearly. It is like one of the most intense records I've ever heard. It is basically um, a diary of Daryl Palumbo 
dealing with having been severely betrayed by his girlfriend at the time, both uh, in, in terms of fidelity and also in terms of lifestyle. And it, it, it's basically the sound of this guy trying to cope with all of this, but also losing his mind. Mm-hmm. And I think you can probably agree with me that some of the stuff on there is like really, really difficult to listen to. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that, uh, and you know, it's, it's genuine sort of. A yeah, no, it is. It is like that's one of why, the most, that's why it's, it's a, it's a very real thing. It is totally unaffected. Yeah. Um, and so it, anyway, I always kind of considered that my favorite of their records. And in fact, when I did my top 30 of the 90s, uh, not the 90s, I'm sorry, the, the aughts list, I think it figured in within to my top 20. Mm-hmm. So it's an album that means a lot to me. It's been with me through some some dark times, right? not as dark as Daryl's, but <laughs> still, it's gotten me th- it's gotten me over some humps. Um, but I have over the years, I have really, really grown to to just love uh, their second record, which was their major label debut, I, though I guess Roadrunner is a major label for all intents and purposes. Uh, yeah, now. these days, sure. Yeah. sure. <laughs> um, but uh, their second album is called Worship and Tribute. It's a much more, much textured, nuanced, um, uh, luxurious record than um, than everything, which was pretty Spartan, um, recorded almost entirely live. My ears are always drawn to the guitar work on this record, which I think is is super intricate and um and under recognized i really like daryl's voice he and um claudio from coheed who we'll discuss a little later they both remind me uh, a bit of hr from bad brains okay um, yeah I see, a, I, I can see that although i, a, I do like claudio yeah. more I, I i i understand where you're coming from there and i'm a big fan of hr and and i was always looking for um successors and, and both those guys kind of provide that for me their list of influences is really interesting too. Um, they count Radiohead, um, Elvis Costello, um, anime soundtracks among their influences. There's a, a lot of other stuff going on. I think that we've kind of prefaced it enough. I think we'll um, go ahead and um, play. Uh, this is Pink Roses off of their second album, Worship and Tribute.
Yeah, I think the moment I like there the most is where kind of in the middle of the snippet that we just listened to is where, I mean, the music is just barreling forth in a way that you're like, they're just going to go off the rails any moment. Right. And, and then he comes in and is just about matching them in, in terms of how wild it gets. Sure. Yet, yet they've got it all under control. Yeah, um, when the chorus comes in, it's like everything just kind of pulls back into focus. Right, right. And some of my favorite music, at least certainly like really heavy music, whether we're talking about Voivod's Roar album or Motorhead's Orgasmatron or whatever it is, you know, it just, it needs to sound like it's going to collapse at any moment, yet right. it never does, right? This or, there's order, or there's Order from Chaos where it's just collapsing all around. <laughs> <laughs> but they actually, yeah, Glassjaw, very different kind of band than all that, but, you know, definitely brings a lot of that into it. You also mentioned the eclecticism of worship and tribute. And um, I, I think that they capitalized on that. I mean, they had a quite a hiatus between that album and then the EPs that came later. Oh yeah. And, like uh, nine, nine years. Yeah. And, but, but they, but they really kind of carried on. Uh, and I think even got even more melodic and more textured. Yeah, for sure. That stuff. Yeah, for sure. The next band we're going to play are just about as left field in the Ginkor area as Glassjaw. They're also possibly the greatest thing that ever came out of the aughts. And I'm talking about Mars Volta. You like this band, right? Every now and then. <laughs> they're, they're a mood thing. Yeah. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, they're like maybe, they're up there with King Crimson as like maybe my favorite band ever. Yeah. And absolutely the greatest thing to come out of the aughts for me. And they, and they fall into Gincor Y. I mean, I think it's obvious, but I'm just more being devil's advocate here. Well, because I mean, they share some of the traits. They, they like, despite how difficult their music can be, Cedric always introduces hooks into the music. It's heavy. It's textured. It's melodic. It's, um, it's unapologetically emotional. It has real rhythmic thrust. I go on and on. It's psychedelic. That, that's why. I think I think also Gincore bands have really quite a wide pool of influence, and I don't think I don't want to say anything demeaning about the, any of the other bands because I'm sure their influences are, are you know it's just as deep of a pool as Mars Volta's. But Mars Volta were always pretty obvious with going back even further than most of these bands do. I think just in terms of like some reference points you can make because when their first album came out, Deloused in the Comatorium, that was 2003. Yes. Uh, you know, everybody was talking about like, oh, it sounds like Santana or it sounds like Led Zeppelin or it sounds like King Crimson in spots. When you and I saw them on the Francis the Mute tour, um, they played Genesis Carpet Crawlers before the show. You they, know, played, um, they played Hawkwind Levitation. Yeah. So, um, so I think more than any of the bands we're talking about, they really wore those 60s and 70s influences on their sleeve. They obviously took it somewhere completely different, completely contemporary, completely daring, they were completely their own band. They weren't any, any kind of retro band. But I just think that's, you know, that stew of influences was probably about as rich and deep as, as you could possibly get it in. Oh, absolutely. I think we should just go ahead and play, uh, play the track. This is a song called Francis the Mute. Now, of course, they had the, their second album was called Francis the Mute, but they left this track off of it, uh, which would have been the title track. This is really one of their best songs, and it ended up as a B-side of the Widow single. But I think anybody that knows this band kind of considers this just as important as any of the other tracks on any of the records. Oh, it's I, I like, to me, the record is sort of incomplete without this. It's a long song. It has a very long intro. It goes a lot of different places in its long span of time. But we think we picked out a really great snippet here. And we're just going to play you this song, Francis the Mute, from the Mars Volta. We'll talk about it when we get back. Thank you. 
Okay, already much to talk about. Uh, I got a couple things. Um, that ending that we just heard in that snippet, that's a theme from the album, am I right? right. right. Yeah, um, and they had that continuity. Well, and, that, and that's one of the, yeah, I mean, that characterizes Francis the Mew because there are a number of motifs that pop up um, yeah. throughout that album. Yeah, all their albums were highly adventurous, highly ambitious. I, I think Francis the Mute probably takes it for just in terms of how far they were going and how deeply they were thinking about their records. I think they probably took it a little too far. Um, I think it's, <laughs> I do. I think it's too long. Um, I think some of the soundtrack stuff could have been cut. Sure. Um, but I think that Omar was like sort of playing the part of, of auteur and he needed to get that out of his system. You know, I, I think it was an important part of his process as an artist. And just like so many great bands, and I'm not saying this is like a formula for like proving you're a true artist or any bullshit like that. But like, you know, the first album was, I would almost say universally recognized. It was, it was hailed. Uh, everybody thought they were like the, the greatest new thing. And then they, and, and they you know, the last in the comatorium remains one of my favorites for sure, if not my favorite, but you know, it was a Rick Rubin album. It sounded like a Rick Rubin album. And, and if you would compare it to things that came later, cause it was clear that he had kind of maybe reined them in a little bit, reined their ambitions yep. in just, just yep. a hair. I mean, this is I didn't mind thing. that though. I like, they're one of those bands that I always thought, it could like because their personalities are so strong that they could benefit from the presence of like a disinterested third party. Sure. Um, because Omar's just so close to that stuff. And I, I, I look, I love Francis. Yeah, I mean, you know that. Um, oh yeah. All but, out. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I, I do agree with some, some of it, it's critics that it, it's maybe a little too indulgent of some of Omar's interests. Yeah, I mean, fair, fair enough. And I, I think it's obvious that he was like, okay, the shackles are off, the reins are off. This is, I'm steering this thing now. For well, I, read, I mean, I remember reading a John Theodore interview and he was like, look, you would have no idea what part of any song you were playing when you tracked. Because <laughs> Omar, Omar was the only person that knew how all the puzzle pieces fit together. It was like, you would play this part and then you would stop. It's like, okay, where does that go? Yeah. And then yeah, all I, of a sudden it's an album. We, we need to be careful to throw the G word around too much, but I, I definitely think Omar's a genius. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do too. No questions asked. I'm not even going to defend that, that the, you know, other than just talking about it, the band a little bit more and playing another snippet. But total genius. Maybe a little too prolific in the solo area. I only have two of his like 47 solo it's Probably albums. as many as you need, yeah. But they're fine. They're good. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in getting a couple more, but I don't know if I need all 123 of them. You know? The anti-mask record was really good. It had its moments. It, the high points are high. The high I think we all want Mars high. Volta to come back. They broke up a few years ago. Yeah. Um, you were crying for weeks, I think, wearing black in, in mourning. <laughs> I'm right? sure. Now, the, the, the thing I want to talk about with Francis the Mute, the song there, and we'll move on to another one, but you know, I'm always transfixed by their music. But I think the th one of the many things that makes them so special is the lyrics. And Cedric brought this just completely surreal aspect to, to the lyrical side of things. I mean, that, that phrase at the end of the snippet we heard, like this never happened as I saw you leave and crawl into a bed of broken windows. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty fantastic. So I'm, I'm just as transfixed by the lyrics yeah, no, um, of his, yeah. yeah, of that band as I am the music. So that was from their second album. They re recorded one more record with that drummer, John Theodore, it's a more uh, amputectures of, I, I would say, a more focused, maybe more 
groovy uh, Mars Volta than you hear on Francis the Mute. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was it was more easily digestible up front for me than Francis was. That's for sure. Sure. Um, after that, they John left the band. They got a new drummer, Thomas Pridgen, whose work I'm less a fan of than than John Theodore's. That's for certain. He plays on the first record they made in that iteration, uh, Bedlam and Goliath, which is. It, it has much less of the, the ambient noise and the soundtrack elements of Francis, but <laughs> kind of pretty much ratchets up the intensity to an almost unbearable level. Wouldn't oh, yeah. Say- By the time you get to like song nine or ten, and some of the strongest songs on that album are later, and it's almost too bad yes. because – that's such a long album that you're just exhausted by the end of it. I mean, not you really you it's so intense or the or the needle down or whatever, however you listen to it on any track or any moment in any track. It's it's pretty great. I can't think of a weak moment. It's just a lot to absorb. Oh no, it's like it, that was the thing is how consistently great it is. It's there's just so much of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but after that record, they recorded an album that was released in 2009 called Octahedron, which was a very different Mars Volta. Love, um, love that album. Yes, it's an amazing album. It's damn near perfect. Yeah. But it's this sort of like dusky, moody Mars Volta that we've only heard in, in, in part before. And they almost kind of indulge it over the course of the record. There, um, there are definitely um, some peaks on the album in, in terms of energy, but in, in terms of a, um, a sustained album, it has a very different mood than any of the records before it. Um, we are going to play a track, um, the second track from the album called Teflon, that... I think both characterizes the album and also um, addresses some of those um, those energetic peaks that we that we mentioned earlier. Um, I I'm absolutely adore the song. Without further ado, take it away, Bixler Zavala, Rodriguez Lopez, <laughs> and Pridgen. Yeah. 
that's great. We could, pro- I mean, let, let's be honest. We could spend an entire episode on, we could probably spend two episodes on this band. Well, such as our sheer well, I think love of this band. I didn't expect us until we just got into it to be as critical as we have been of certain little aspects of Mars Volta. I mean, right. but I think you're maybe most critical of the one you love the most, you know, it's probably like Absolutely. That, that thing with well, her, I mean, her favorite kid, <laughs> but <laughs> this band. Wow. I mean, like I'm listening to Teflon and I'm thinking every time I listen to Mars Volta, like that is the best music on the planet when I'm listening to it. You know, like um, Mika Matilla said something really interesting one time. And he actually he said, said that about Emperor, didn't he? He did. He said it about anthems. He said, when you listen to this, it's not that it's the greatest record in the world. It's that it's the only record in the world. That's, that's exactly how I feel about it. You're talking about Mick. I want to give a props to Mikko Matilla of Istin uh, fanzine, which is the greatest fanzine of all time. All time. Yeah, but that, uh, one thing I want to talk two things I want to talk about. The bass playing, incredible. You can't be in Mars Volta and not be a prodigy of some kind or of some level. <laughs> Juan Alderete. I hope I'm saying that right. Juan yeah, Alderete. Juan Alderete. Yeah. Weirdly enough, comes from a metal band that some people may remember called Racer X. Racer X. <laughs> Not a band I ever got into, but I mean, they were full of talent. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and here he is in Mars Volta. They were a shrapnel band. They were, yeah. So Shred band, yeah. So we've got, we've got one degree of separation between shrapnel and gold standard laboratories. <laughs> what, what, what is it about Pridgen that you don't like as much as you do John Theodore? Pridgen comes out of the whole gospel chops scene, and he, he can just, you explain gospel chops? Because I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Gospel yeah. chops is this basically like this sort of micro drum scene of these dudes that are just insane shredders, and a lot of the, in fact they'll have these gospel chops sessions where they have these dudes from Berkeley and elsewhere. They'll just basically get in a circle, and they'll just take turns trading you know fours or sixteens or whatever, and I mean they just it's like this post. Uh, Dennis Chambers ultra shred on the drum. They'll set up and they'll basically just compete with each other, which is great. And these guys are all amazing musicians. But John Theodore brought such a musicality and a sensitivity and a like a groove to Mars Volta that when I heard Pridgen on Goliath, that was gone all of a sudden. And there was this like really. I seemed to me at the time almost pretentious this like this need to show off uh his technical abilities and it took away from the music mm. but on octahedron I think that's largely absent and I think he plays very musically on octahedron and very sensitively to the music okay. um, and I, okay. the, his his drum groove to teflon it, it's you know it's it has an interesting gait about it and it's kind of surprising but it's like it's very soulful too yeah yeah, I'm a fan. So I'm a fan on Octahedron, less of a fan on on Bedlam. Okay, and then of course if you want to get really really weird with the drums, then you should check out uh, D'Antoni uh, Parks's drumming on Nocturnicate. Nocturnicate, their final album. I was just going to bring that up because not only because it was their final album, but because you know they had another drummer change, and I think that the drumming personality in the music changed just as much as it did from Theodore to Pridgen. For sure. No, I think Parks' drumming more than any of the other guys actually shaped the music on Nocturnicate. Oh, my God. Nocturnicate's great. I think it, it just starts so... <laughs> Forbiddingly? It's difficultly a word. It, it's yeah, just well, difficult when, you, when, when it begins, and, and it takes a little while for you to kind of acclimate to where they've gone. Right? Oh, they throw down the gauntlet at the beginning yeah. of that record. It's I like, think 
Yeah, I think empty vessels, the force thong, empty vessels make the loudest sound. That's, oh, that's finally where you get, oh, you know, you're like, you're finally acclimated. You can kind of hang with that one. And then, you know, you go back and listen to Whip Hand and Aegis and okay, it makes sense, you know. But yeah, that, yeah. that one was difficult for me at first. It wasn't for me, oddly. I remember um, Cedric describing the music on the album months before it came out as future punk. And I just hmm. was like really drawn it. That was just one of those phrases that compelled me. And so when I heard it, I was like, I think I get what he's saying. I think that helps you out. I think you're, I think, did, you're totally. I think you're primed at that point. For sure. No, no, yeah. no. I, like I'd spent like, you know, the months before the record came out, just mulling over exactly what future punk would sound like. Did you know that uh, Zed and two knots from Nocturnica came out on the MLB 12, the show soundtrack, that, that video game. <laughs> I, I, did, I did not know that. I only bring that up because I love baseball. I don't play video games. Yeah, I don't so play bas- baseball video games, but I, I love any reference to Mars Volta and baseball. Let's move yeah. on to the Deftones. Let's. Big baseball fans, I think. I, don't know. I think they are actually. Deftones are weird, man. I, in the mid to late 90s, there's certainly uh, the band that's maybe longest in the tooth of all these bands. In terms mm. of- yeah, probably. Maybe. I mean, well, their first record, I mean, their first like major record came out in 1995. Yeah. So they're obviously. And I know you have more sympathy for the first two Deftones uh, records. No, not, the, not the first. I never liked but Adrenaline. Radical Research is on record as saying Adrenaline kind of sucks. We're, you, we're good. you can expect some feedback from Mr. Adler on this one. That's fine. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to shout out to Benjamin. I, hey, b- by the way, I want to shout out to Forrest Pitts, who... We're, we're titling this episode, Let Go and Let Gin, and that's a, that's a play on another phrase out there, but he came up with that. We didn't. So Forrest Pitts, one of our most loyal listeners, along with Adler, shout out to him. Indeed. So yeah, so Adrenaline sucks. Around the Fur has a couple songs on it I like, but I right. can't hang. It's, yeah, I can't either. It's the sound. You can hear the rumblings of a good band inside that record. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it but, that. Absolutely, I'll give it that. And then White Pony came across, like very much like Jupiter did or Three's Wake Pig, came across my desk and I just ignored it for a little while. And I finally put it on. I was walking around New York with headphones, commuting, and um, I just thought, this is Deftones. This this is that band, kind of like I did with Cave. Yeah. And I love White Pony to this day. Still, probably my oh, favorite yes. record by them. Fantastic. Record. Diamond Eyes is close second, mm-hmm. but yeah, they they really transcended the new metal thing because I argue that they were most definitely a new metal band. Those first two albums. Oh, for sure. And then they broke out of it with White Pony. Yeah. They just said they they blasted the mold apart and gave us de- gave us real Deftones. I think. Yeah, I mean. If Digital Bath were the only song on that record, I'd still love it. You mean I, by I, that I think, you mean? Yeah, I think I have to say this: as, as if we're talking about drummers, I think Abe Cunningham is an extremely underrated drummer. Oh, totally. Abe Cunningham's totally. an amazing player. Totally in the pocket as. Oh God! D- d- never, never leaves the pocket. <laughs> because has dinner down there. Takes yeah. down there. Whatever, yeah. guys. I'm sorry, I'm in the pocket. So. Yeah, Deftones, they, they totally fall into the line here because they started bringing in influences from like The Cure. Um, well, and, and the thing is, is like those, th- those influences were always there. In fact, they, um, there's some anecdotes from Chino about um, when they recorded their first couple of records. And uh, they were, you know, B-sides were a common thing back then, right? You would record you know, a clutch of B-sides for singles or whatever. And 
Ter- <laughs> Terry Date was their producer, and they wanted to do like Duran Duran covers and like Joy Division covers. Yep. Terry Date was like, "What? What is this? <laughs> what are you guys doing? I thought you were like a metal band or something." Um, but yeah, you hear those influences really start to, to fester and come up to the surface on White Pony. But yeah. two, they, they also added a DJ. And unlike right. all the other new metal bands who added DJs for scratching, they added DJs. Uh, they added a DJ um, for like another dimension of sound. Because oh, I just, yeah, it's a much deeper texture with, with him in the band than without. Well, he was a- actually adding samples into a live music. Uh, context yeah which and is I think really she, kind of an interesting thing to do and chino became a real phenomenal vocalist yes, um on totally white pony and i think he's he's really for me the focal point more than i mean guitar tone is a huge thing with deftones abe cunningham is a huge thing but i think chino is the link um chino's the no, chino's the force uh, we want to play a lot of songs from all these bands. I, I think more than any episode of Radical Research so far, we had real trouble picking snippets because these bands are really, these bands are really song oriented, right? Yes. So many hooks, so many moments, so many things to latch onto. So we had real trouble picking stuff from this uh, for this episode, and Deftones was no exception. I mean, there's probably 78 songs I'm thinking of right now that. Uh, I'd love to play by them, but we picked Cherry Waves from Saturday Night Wrist. Yes. So this was a, so this record came out in 06. It's preceded by the self-titled record, which was a more, a heavier, more aggressive, more direct record than White Pony. Still very dark, very atmospheric, but definitely a move away from some of the textures of White Pony. It's my Um, least favorite of the White Pony and, and thereafter albums. <sighs> to 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 clumsily yeah put that stuff under an umbrella. Uh, not that it's bad. I just find less less moments on it. However, I love it. It's got a lot of great moments. Yeah, yeah I love it. But the, the the follow up Saturday Night Wrist was a lot more textured, a lot stranger, a lot more atmospheric. Yes, yeah, slower, yeah. more melodic. Um, and we're gonna play a song off that record called Cherry Waves. I think this is a really uh, really good representation of the album.
the layers and the textures, man. Again, the 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 stratospheric chino. Yeah, yeah. It's you no, know, it's a it's a cumulative effect, but yeah, chino really shines on that chorus. Most of our listeners are probably pretty zoned in on metal and prog. And I think if they ever thought that they didn't like the Deftones, I, I hope they changed their mind on that one. Um, there's a lot of, lot of really great stuff to explore. With They're a, a, a mischaracterized band. Yes. Sure. Yeah. And Even I agree, to- man. I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I, metal and prog makes up the bulk of my listening and I love Deftones. Koino Yokan, Gore, you name it, man. Like all that yeah. stuff's really great. So the next band uh, is a Danish band called Mew, M-E-W. My introduction to this band was a little <laughs> bit frustrating. Um, uh, I was going through probably the worst time of my entire life uh, in late 2011. And Hunter and I had already sort of established that there was a thing called Ginkor in our, in our world. And this album had been out, this song had been out for about six years. Five, six years, yeah. It was Mew's and the Glass Handed Kites album. And the song we're going to play is called Zookeeper's Boy. We were in the car driving from point A to point B. And I'd never heard of them. And Hunter had known about them for years, apparently. And plays me <laughs> this wonderful trilogy that I think a lot of Mew fans probably like hold up as oh, one of the best sure. moments on any Mew album. That's uh, Apocalypso, Special, and Zookeeper's Boy. And I was, go- I, was go- I was losing my mind. I was transfixed. I was a fan immediately. I had to have this. I had to have it in my life. And like I said, I was going through like the worst time in my life. And, I, and this stuff was so beautiful to me. So like in one day I introduced you to the uh, crispy potato soft taco from Taco Bell, which is <laughs> delicious and inexpensive and probably not altogether good for you. And Mew. Yeah. I, mean, I felt badly about the delayed introduction to both of those things. Yeah. Well, you know, you should feel badly about like turning me on to any fast food whatsoever, but, um, <laughs> you know, soft shell taco is quite good. I have to admit, but yeah, so, so this was the introduction and, um, it, they're an amazing band. We're actually going to go back a little bit, uh, with them. This is a, a song from 2003 from their Fringers album. It's a song called One Five Six. How did you discover Mew, and, and what do you want to say about One Five Six before we play it? I discovered Mew through Matt Johnson. Oh um, yeah, yep. And Matt and I are like we tend to find more intersection outside of metal than within it. And he described him for me, and I, you know, I really like the description. And I think even at the time, he like burned the CD and mailed it to me, to Glass Handed Kites, and I loved it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when Apocalypso came on the first time, it was like, man, this could be one of my favorite bands. You know, yeah. this is a band that I'll return to for years. Yeah. Um, so after, so I actually got into Fringers after that. And, and anyway, one, five, six is one of my very favorite Muse songs. Let's um, do it. This band is yeah, let's, let's, total magic, total magic. This is one, five, six. Yeah. 
think it um, bears saying that they're probably the most ethereal of the Gencore bands, right? Oh, for sure. I think, yeah, I think we're, about Mew. yeah, I think we're Mars, Mars Volta's on one edge, the spectrum, I think Mew's on the other. Yeah, there's like a, it's like a Fantasia. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I don't I hate to read too much into a band's sound from their biography, their environment or whatever, but like I, there's something like Nordic and wintry about Muse music that I just love to death. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, even in some of their promo photos, they, they show like all dressed up in heavy coats and kind right. of, in, you know, wintry blustery sort of like environments. And I, I, th- I think it fits, I, but to me, there's a beauty and a warmth about them. That's just comforting. And you, you've, you've talked on two different episodes about music as a blanket sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think Mew is a blanket for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it might've been when I was introduced to the next song we're going to play and how important and I, I I can't even stress enough how important that was in my life and the beauty it brought into my world when I needed it so badly. And that was a blanket. And this band is really so special. And in fact, I saw them for the first time and only time so far about three years ago in Washington, DC. And I remember Matt Johnson telling me, Matt Johnson comes up often as, as often as flutes and (laughs) records in this podcast. Uh, We're going to do, when we get to show 100, we're going to have like the three most common threads be Matt Johnson, Peaceville and flutes. But anyway, uh, he, he was like, dude, Jonas, the singer, man, he's a madman. You're going to go, you just, you just, you wait. And I was like, I was thinking, wow, okay. He's a madman. He doesn't sound like a madman. No, he doesn't. He was like being kind of sarcastic. I, I think because vocally he was amazing live, but he just kind of stood there, clutched his mic, clutched his mic cord and he just belted it out. And he's got this kind of life sort of lilting. Yeah, almost elfish voice. Sometimes. Elfish voice. And I thought that's what he was talking about. Like he's a madman in the sense of him being so composed. Right. Belting out this completely emotional stuff uh, behind this band that's just cranking out this beautiful layered music. Anyway, we could talk. We'll probably do a whole show on Mew or one of their albums someday. But this is Mew, the zookeeper's boy from Glass-Headed Kites.
Last thing I want to say about Mew is I think there's a fair turnabout with the Plus Minus album because I latched onto that one that came out a few years ago. My favorite album along with Arcturus is Arcturian that year. And um, you just kind of ignored it. You weren't ready for it. You weren't, you just weren't, they weren't on the radar for you for some reason. It just and, sounded really light and insubstantial to me at the time. But and what then, about now? It was, it actually happened probably a few months ago. Um, and uh, a drummer that I follow on Instagram, a guy named Dave Elich, who um, he, he played, he, live drummer for Mars Volta, played on the Anti-Mask record, among other things. He made a post about one of the songs on this record called Making Friends. And I went and listened to it, and I guess it was the right time for me. And that song really captured me um, at the time. And I went back, and the, like, the entire record's just magnificent. Sometimes it's just the wrong time to hear a record. No, I, I, I totally hear you, man. I mean, <laughs> there's a hundred of those uh, sure. for me. Wasn't chastising you. No, 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 no. But and I, also, I, t- I took a little pleasure in it because, you know, you withheld them from me for, like, years. How many years? <laughs> They could have been in my life. But um, you know, you know what? At, le- at least five. But, but, but like I but, said, though, they did but, come in, they came into my life at the right time. Exactly. So thank you. It was you. providential. Okay, You're yes, such a good friend. <laughs> I try. Yeah. You didn't take me to Alaska, but that's cool. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Um, Coheed and Cambria. This is a band that, is it fair to say they came from the emo core scene? Whatever the hell. Oh, yeah. I know they were at, yeah, their early stuff is... 100% emo. I don't even know what that is, but fair enough. Um, you played them for me when you were living in South Carolina. Correct. Columbia, right? It was the night that we played the Dopes to Infinity drinking game. Friends of the show. <laughs> <laughs> David Windorf says baby, sings baby a lot in, uh, in, in any given Monster Magnet album. So we every time he's saying baby, we drank. Yes. So um, thankfully we But beer. So. We were drinking beer. We were drinking a, a low Triplet, alcohol right? beer because we, we knew what was before us. So uh, fair enough. Um, but anyway, yeah, you played them for me. You played, um, you know, good song. Burning Star 4 had just come out. Yeah. And I heard so much in them. I heard Thin Lizzy and Queen. I heard, I even heard like some Megadeth. I remember. That was what I remember is we talked about Cryptic Writings era, like the, the good songs in Cryptic Writings. Sure. Like, the yeah. sort of intricate riffing style and the yeah. syncopated vocals. Yeah. But with a kind of this poppy aspect and like right. Coheed was coming from this really interesting place. And um, yeah, I, I've since come to think the Aftermath albums are my favorite by them. Those two are great. They really are. And then after that, I think they kind of took the poop. Yeah. I'm not interested in anything after that either. Yeah. I just, it, um, but you know what? Uh, their great stuff is great. Uh, in keeping and, you know, this record and up to Afterman, I'd stand behind all that. Yeah. You, you picked 10 Speed Y. I, this is the song that introduced them to me. They've been getting hype. And I don't know if you remember, like, the, the real player. There's actually, like, a real player store that maybe – it didn't precede iTunes, but it was, like, a contemporary of iTunes at the time. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have an iPod at the time. Mm-hmm. So I actually bought the song electronically. And um, Was that one of your first electronic purchases? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, um, and I just, there was so much hype around it and so many people whose opinions I found reliable. I thought that, you know, I should at least just kind of check it out. And I did. And I remember literally like just kind of bouncing around my bedroom in South Carolina. (laughs) Uh, because I was just, the catchiness of it just drove me wild. It's got an amazing opening, keeping the blade and always and never like that. (sighs) Wow. 
and, and welcome yeah. home. And yeah, then, for those three, right. then after those three, you get 10 speed. This is 10 speed of God's blood and burial from the album, Good Apollo on Burning Star 4, volume one, from fear <laughs> through the eyes <laughs> of madness. Yeah, the more I hear Coheed and Cambria, that you know, when I pull out the albums and listen to the ones that I like, um, I hear more. I hear Thin Lizzy more than anything. Yeah, there's a lot of Thin Lizzy, and that's a good thing. I mean, that's, that's a really swagger. Yeah, that's a band I, I learned to love after a time of thinking I didn't like them, and and once once they clicked, I thought, oh God, Thin Lizzy is incredible. Kind of same thing with Coheed when they when they sure. lock in, they're they're pretty amazing. What, one thing I wanted to say before we move on to uh, the next three and final bands. I feel like there's a kinship between this group of bands, Ginkor, or at least a spiritual thread between these bands and what I what I've always kind of defined as art rock. Uh, by that I don't mean pure prog, uh, but like the mid to late '70s stuff, like 10CC and Roxy Music and Early Angel and Split Ends is early stuff and City Boy and Crack the Sky and other stuff. Like all all that stuff, like married elements of prog and pop and hard rock and this kind of sophisticated eclecticism into their music. So for me, like Ginkor was kind of the answer to that in the 2000s. Because it, 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 it kind of did all that same stuff. And you, you raised a lot of these points in the, in the first you know, 15 minutes of this show, talking about kind of what this stuff is and, and why it resonates with us. But I guess by that same token, you could probably draw parallels to the initial post-punk movement, right? In terms of hybridism. Yeah, but like, I mean, with post-punk, there was, there was an impulse to push farther and farther away from the mainstream 
through music concrete and through uh, okay. dub influences. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was a, there was an, an intentional, you know, obfuscation with post-punk. Whereas the art rock bands that you're talking about and the Gencore bands, they're, I, I want to say they're, a, they're aspirational, but these are bands that do love elements of pop music. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I always think like Crack the Sky or City Boy should have been huge because they did have songs that, you know, just with the right break or whatever, could well, have been huge on FM radio and made them household names. I think the same thing of a lot of these bands. And when I listen to Koki yeah. or Three or even Caven, really, I think that like, you know, with the right break, they could have been household names as well. Don't really I care totally so much agree. about I that mean, in the long run. They exist in my world, and that's all I care about selfishly. But well, Cave In was a heartbreak for me because I remember. I mean, I was just so rabidly into them, and thinking like, okay, a great band is finally on the cusp of mainstream success, and it just, yeah. it escaped them. Yeah, Antenna. You you thought they had it all in line with Antenna? Great album, great songs, great hooks. Uh, they kind of like focused their sound, and, even, and even they courted favor out, with bands elements. who were genuinely successful. Yeah. 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 Eh. Here's another band. I, I think more than any of these others, actually, we, we've talked about them in, in terms of like, why weren't the band three just huge? Because they, out of all these others, probably had the most poppy aspects. They even dip into like Prince in certain spots. Oh, sure. They dip into R&B. They dip into that soulful kind of gut thing that you love about that stuff, if you love that stuff. and what can we say about three, man, other than under freaking rated? Well, and two, there's um, actual relationship kind of between Coheed and three. In right. that, um, yeah, Joey Eppard, the singer and, and chief songwriter for three, is the brother of Josh Eppard, who played drums on that last Coheed track that you heard. And happens um, to have a voice that sounds quite a bit like Claudio from Coheed, right? But far more... Um, I, far more palatable, I think. I, I, I completely less, yeah, in less fact, divisive. In fact, um, when three came out, I quite immediately got really sick of the Coheed comparisons because I I I think three are, and this is all respect to Coheed and how much I like them, but I think three are like five times better. Oh yeah, yeah. If I can quantify it somehow, <laughs> I think three are better. I think three are just all around, just kind of. Just, there's a more there's more diversity there. There's more depth there. I, it just appeals to me more. And I think that they didn't, and because they didn't get the attention that Kohi got, I always find it just a little bit depressing that three didn't make it. Now three opened up for porcupine tree. Uh, back in the day, they opened up for scorpions. And if they couldn't break through those two very different audiences, which they could completely appeal to Absolutely. You know, scorpions and porcupine tree, great bands. Why great songwriters. Why couldn't three, breakthrough they just didn't such as it is we're going to play a couple songs from three's career which seems to be kind of over at this point it's unfortunate they did a few electronic uh single releases in 2014 but nothing by electronic you mean just they were on band camp. They were, yeah right they, yeah no they don't sell like apex twin they, were, <laughs> uh, they didn't sound like nitzarab or anything no no <laughs> okay nitzarab this is, uh, this is from uh, Wake Pig. This is a song called Amaze Disgrace, which is probably their most renowned song and their most recorded song. They yeah, of, I was about to say, <laughs> more than one version of this song. <laughs> right, right. Ginkor enthusiasts will, uh, will know what we're talking about when we say Amaze Disgrace. This album sat on my desk for about three months before I actually picked it up because it looked to me like some new metal crap, some alternative rock crap. Horribly unappealing. 
I remember picking it up finally and going, okay, I need to listen to this promo that I have in my stack of promos. And I bought every album since. And I went back and bought all the other previous albums. We're both huge fans, but this is, I think, I guess, is, is this the only Ginkor album I, or Ginkor band I've turned you on to? Yes. <laughs> you came up with that real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, let, without further ado, this is uh, Three's Amazed Disgrace. So many years ago I mean, at the end there, you get two of my favorite things about three. Um, you get the incomparable Billy Riker. And I, I, the, the one, if I have one qualm about three, it's that I never hear enough Billy Riker soloing. Uh, I, I, think, I, I agree. And I've talked with Matt Johnson about that, actually. I think the guy is a real artist um, and a real talent. And I always wish that you could hear more of his solo work in three, but it is what it is. It's a, yeah. obviously a decision on their part. And also the, the fantastic Gart drum, um, who I think is a super powerful and again, very, very underrated drumming presence and, and, a, and a real, um, a real force in that band. Uh, I think Gart, a lot of what Gart drum does um, kind of shapes the music. I could okay. not as I, much as, uh, as Joey Eppard. And that's why we picked my divided falling as the next track. Uh, this is, this is from the follow-up to Wake Pig. Now, let me say, and let me say too, look, one thing, like Jeff was very tentative to throw around the term genius earlier in regard to, to Omar from Mars Volta. We are equally hesitant to say uh, the words perfect album together. Are yeah. we not, Jeff? Yeah. yeah. I think, personally, I think The End Has Begun is a perfect album. I think that perfect albums exist, and I, I've heard people say that, that it's just impossible bullshit. Moving pictures couldn't be better. There are, there are albums that when you're done with the journey at, at the end of the listen that you're like, I wouldn't change a thing. 
if it moves you deeply and that's, that's the response, who cares? Right. Right. I think they exist, but I, I agree with you on end has begun. I think it's threes. It's the closest three ever got to a perfect album. I, it's yeah, it's, it's their best work. Yeah. Speaking of Gart drum, we picked my divided falling because of him, or at least partly because of him, because his, his work on this song is so good and you're going to hear it in the snippet. It's also, I want to say real quick that none of these bands are metal bands. None of them are listed on metal archives. Three weirdly ended up on Metal Blade Records with Wake Pig and and Has Begun and The Ghost You Gave to Me, a really great album that is kind of so far their final album. How does that work? How does that work in the metal world? Like, how, do they they fit? Was it just was it because Metal Blade also had Spock's beard for a time? They also had well, dude, some other like stuff. Metal Blade signed Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah, it, well, there you go. Sure. I mean, Slagle obviously you know has an ear for things outside of metal, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I think one of the themes that you'll find on this show is like the notion of interloping because we tend to traffic in very like mongrel like impure music. And I mean, I mean, really though, I mean, and you and I have even addressed this directly. Like we are not typically fans of like pure forms of music. We're into bastardizations. We are absolutely. And I mean, there's enough heaviness um, to appeal to some adventurous metal fans. There's certainly enough ambition to appeal to prog and art rock fans. Yeah. Um, and, and there's just enough anthemic sing-along qualities to appeal to mainstream rock fans. But sadly, they were unable to, to capture that audience. Yeah, so this came out, wow, 11 years ago. That makes me feel quite old because it seems like yesterday when I was blown away by this album. But this is The End Has Begun by Three and the song itself is My Divided Falling. digest in one clip it's a beauty of this band man yeah i, I love mean, that that really bluesy um kind of 70s riker lick that leads into joey's falsetto there too yeah and then when we get back to gart drum who his real name is chris gartman but he apparently wanted to be known as gart drum 
And uh, I, I think for three fans, <clears throat> that name kind of rolls off the lips a lot easier. Yes. And uh, he's, he's amazing. If you, if you didn't hear it in that clip, you, you won't hear it. Let's move on. Let's move on to uh, California. Let's. Before we do, well, now while we do, most of this stuff is an American phenomenon, right? Because Mew is the only band out of all of these that resides anywhere yes, else right. in the U.S. What does uh, Mr. Ginn think about that in terms of the Ginn Core universe? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, and one that I haven't really considered. Um, hmm. Better consider it, buddy. I'm considering it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I mean, I I guess if you look at um, at what's called modern rock, it's largely an American phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I guess you get outliers like uh, like uh, Muse, you know, from England. Ocean Size Um, from England. Ocean Size, yeah. Are are um, they Gincor? Ocean Size. Um, they're they're peripheral Gincor. Okay. Sure. Yeah. They're, they're, they're worth a mention. PG. And they're, I mean, they're, they're a good band. It's just not a band that I've ever really um, attached to emotionally. Same. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, but there's a – and again, man, I hate to, like, to make generalizations, but there, there is in general a muscularity about Gincor that is an intrinsically American value and one that I think you will find sort of conspicuously absent from you. Who is, is, right. is a, a, you know this a, like a more magical, um, more uh, a, a band with a, a lighter touch about them? Well, right. I was going to say. I mean, they're magical, but that you know, Mew is anything but muscular. So it, when you right. said that, I thought that's you know they they fit in 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 the concentric circles of of all the Ginkor influences and intersections, but they're not they're not the, the, on the sturdier side of it, right? Right. Yeah. Thank you for making me uh, think about that. Let's get to Dredge from uh, California area. And um, yes. one of our favorites, absolutely. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And this takes Gincor to its stratospheric peak. And they're an interesting band too, because they tend to respond. They tend to respond to their own work. Um, and it is, it's not un, it's not unique among, you know, it's not unique to Dredge and not unique among rock bands. But there's a, a vacillation between albums. They tend to go really, really um, rich and really textured and progressive. And then they pair back and they make very song-oriented records. Um, sadly, yeah. they're yeah. no longer doing either of those things. Yeah, I, I've, heard, I've heard that they're dabbling and making a new record, but I'll believe that when I see it. I was one of the few people that liked Chucky when it came out and still likes it. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, Chucky. I call it Chucky fucking hell. Chuckle. <laughs> Chuckles and Mr. Squeezy. It's not a great album title. Cams. I like the album, and I think that everything they did had merit. I think it's also fair to say that you and I both think Pariah, Parrot, and The Delusion is their best album. Yeah, probably. Yet, yeah, I mean, not a, yeah, it is. It is. The success of that record relies on the, the full sum of its parts. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's a true album. In that, it is. In that it's sense. a true album. So we're going to play a couple tunes from Dredge. Um, the first one is from El Cielo, and the second one is from Catch Without Arms. El Cielo, it, uh, it, it was, took late motif, their debut, and kind of expanded upon it. I think they certainly improved it in all aspects. We're going to play the Canyon Behind Her from that one. And then Catch Without Arms, as fantastic as it is, definitely kind of focused a little bit, kind of streamlined a little bit, um, and I th- think it's also 
pertinent to say that. It's a contentious record among Dredge fans. And, and what's that? I, it's a contentious record among Dredge fans. It I, is. Most Dredge fans find El Cielo to be the superior record. Um, and, 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 like, and Catch Without Arms to be a bid for mainstream success. For me, Catch Without Arms and Pariah are the two. And I think, yep. I think El Cielo is fantastic, and I would never take anything away from it. The thing I like about Catch Without Arms is Chris DeGarmo from Queensryche actually co-wrote several of the songs. Yes. You, you have to love that. You do. Because it's and, like, where, where were you for Queensryche, man? And let me take a complete left field turn, but just say that Rage for Order, I've listened to that three times this year so far, and I think it's such a masterpiece. Well, yeah, obviously. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Just wanted to give it a little love. That's all. Yeah, that's no, no, sure. Give Rage for her some hugs. This is uh, Dredge, the canyon behind her. Man, that's some intriguing stuff, especially that stuff at the end. Of this it thing. is. Um, <laughs> another thing that, like, that I want to mention with them, I guess drummers have come up quite a bit tonight. Oh, God, um, huge it. fan of Dino Campanella. Yes. And one of the reasons I think this song is so interesting, um, and it's probably the, the only time that Simon Reynolds will be named twice in one show. But we, Jeff and I are both big admirers of Simon Reynolds' writing. Um, find little um, of our own taste that intersects with his. <laughs> Actually, he's not a big yes fan. No, not a, no, he is not a yes fan. And I'm not a big um, Ariel Pink fan. So we'll just <laughs> or what? What's that band from Washington that? Uh, beat happening. Oh God. <laughs> You're worse than Nickelback, man. <laughs> somehow. Yeah, somehow. <laughs> but he. Um, Simon Reynolds um, was one of the first journalists to really um, cover jungle and drum and bass back in the um, the 
early to mid nineties. And, um, the, the beginning of this, the clip that we played has a lot of affinities to a subgenre of jungle, um, that Simon Reynolds coined called ambient jungle. Um, and it, it's mostly around like the moving shadow, um, label, um, artists like Omni trio and foul play, but it pairs kind of a rhythmic dexterity with this sweeping melancholy. And usually mm -hmm. the melodies are, um, are expressed on piano, um, and have kind of a, a atmospheric synth patch behind them. And I always pictured Dredge as a band that listens very widely. I mean, their music kind of, I, I, kind of evidences that I would say, I mean, just the, you know, the, the variety of what they do, obviously a band that's interested in a lot of different music. Oh yeah. Um, but I, I like, I always heard the, the first time I heard Canyon behind her, I was like, damn man, this, does this band listen to like LTJ Bookum? I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised by almost any influence they name, whether it was like crazy extreme metal to really light R and B. Right. 70s. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. There's mean, a like, total Hall and Oates homage on. on yeah. In, in fact, the vocalist at one point, Gavin said that, um, I think it was during the Chuckles era, maybe the Pariah era, but he said that were, he was listening to a lot of AM radio. And I yeah. thought, what the fuck is AM radio these days? You know, but, uh, <laughs> cool you know i mean just that, he, <laughs> right. that he's doing that and spinning the dial to AM radio yeah for, for pleasure and influence and and uh yeah fantastic so we but you but you you started talking about dino the drummer have you have you seen them live i'm not seeing i mean i've not seen I, them live i think i've told you about them live because yeah. i saw them i saw them twice here in greensboro on the chuckles tour and um in la at the troubadour during the Pariah tour when they played the entire late motif album in, in full. Cause it was like the anniversary or something of that album. Okay. And both times I was so surprised at how hard oh, he Dino hit the drums shit out of the drums. Oh, he, he just, I mean, I thought Dale Crover from Melvin's was the hardest hitter I'd ever seen live. Yeah. And I've seen Melvin the drums, man. You don't really hear it on the recordings you don't. Until, you, until you see him live. And then you go back and listen. You're like, okay, I mean, they probably have to rein him in in the studio a little bit, but yeah, he's he's definitely a monster. He's a talent, man. No, no, for sure. He's amazing. Let's listen to what I think is, well, what I know is one of my favorite songs of all time, <laughs> any genre, any era. This is Dredge's Ode to the Sun.
I got nothing to say, but wow. Yeah, I mean, it. every time I hear it, it takes me back to the the exact moment that I heard it for the first time. Totally. It's, that kind it of sound. truly yeah. one of my favorite songs of all time. And not only that, it's one of those that you're glad that opens the that had to open the album. That couldn't have ever been in question. When yeah, you and I, like, I mean, we often complain about a band um, kind of peaking a little too early. When I sure. mean, and it's any band's instinct to lead with with its strongest cut, but like that out that that wasn't even a negotiation. That that song had to open the album. Yeah, that's one of those things. Like the. the I, I feel like the the best albums don't usually open with the best song. I'm, now I'm thinking of my favorite album of all time, Moving Pictures. I can't think of a better song than Tom Sawyer right. like, by Rush or any other band. But they were able to maintain that excitement and quality throughout the entire album. Usually you can't. Um, afflicted, Prodigal Son. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Very good. I have to say, the, the rest of that album is pretty awesome. No, the rest of the album's awesome, but that's the you know that that's like the first dismember and both dismember and entombed debut albums like the afflicted open with their best song, and um somehow they they keep you listening and keep you happy throughout the the rest of the album. you know this is another one where Ode to the Sun clearly the best song in the album, but lots of great stuff to come, so it's we hold it in pretty high esteem and I got to tell you, I'm you know I don't want to get too nostalgic or touchy feely here, but I'm so grateful to be friend of the namesake of all this great Gincor. I mean, who knew, <laughs> I'm, right? <laughs> I'm equally honored, man. This is also a tribute to your father. Yes. Who? The, the last yeah, time I you, saw yeah, you, you talk about the great Jerry Ginn. The Jerry Ginn was an awesome man. He he loved music. He loved rock. He loved ZZ Top. He thought that Canvas Solaris uh, wasn't speedy enough at some point. <laughs> Jerry Ginn was the man. I, I always looked up to your father. I thought he was a great guy. Wish I had gotten more time with him. Was shocked when I when I learned he died. Wish I'd got more time with him too, man. Oh, dude, I hear you. To me, Ginkor is you know <laughs> the namesake of Jerry Ginn as much as it is Hunter Ginn. <laughs> He'd be proud, I, I hope. But yep. probably most of these bands wouldn't be like speedy enough for him, <laughs> right? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> too atmospheric, too, uh, yeah, too twee. Your dad was a stickler, man. He, he liked it heavy. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to close out the show with, of the nine bands we featured, five of them are defunct right now. Um, very sad, kind of short-lived careers for most of these bands. Kind of like tech metal, if you think about it. Yeah, it's a, a different problem. You know, in tech metal, um, I, I, tech metal bands either um, either evolve or they wear out. Oh, they hit a wall. Quickly. Yeah, right. I mean, like, there's only so far you can go, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and in, I, I think with these bands, it was more of a, an issue of exhaustion. You know, I think these bands, you know, were all on the cusp of great success at one time. I mean, some of them had great success. I mean, yeah. I, think, I mean, Deftones have had a sustainable career, but I mean, a lot of these bands were um, were at the very verge of you know of something big. Um, of a, a, I guess on the very verge is that a, is that a House of Usher seven inch reference or? Oh, I mean, you know, you know me, man. <laughs> anyway, sorry. But yeah, but I mean, I, I think a lot of these bands were probably um, discouraged by their um, by the the fates that they met. Actually, yeah. and I don't know if this is going too personal, but I actually have a friend who talked to Gavin from um, from Dredge um, and got kind of personal with him, and and he, I mean, basically said, you know we're not making any money. Like the stuff's not going anywhere. We're just worn out. And it's just, so, I mean, it's, it's the, it's, it's exactly the same kind of dejection that you get in our Decroitson story. 
like where these bands are making like the best music of their careers and they're it's just falling on deaf ears it might i mean even though ginkor seemed of the time maybe it's out of time maybe it maybe well you actually you and i talked about this when antenna came out it's like is a guitar-oriented rock album really a viable commercial um, option these days? Right. When most commercial music is, in fact, electronic. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe not. And maybe what, it's kind of like bands, it's yeah. rock's sort of, you know, last rebellion. And one of the bands I miss so much out of the five of these nine that are no longer around is Fair to Midland from Texas. I This band... This is one, this is, of all these, this is one that gets more and more and more special every time I listen. And they have very few albums. They have, I guess, what, one or two self-released albums and then the two that- And then the two, yeah, labels. major label records, um, yeah. And I just love this band so much. Fairly Midland just had such an incredible sound. I could go on and on, so you better stop me. Yeah, they were actually, the. Um, I actually got into them a little more hesitantly than I did any of the others. Why was that? Because there was a certain, I guess, a lineage that I heard to like the kind of modern rock that I didn't like right. at first. And like I found the vocals a little difficult to get into. Suffice it to say, um, I persevered and found tremendous reward in this band, actually. Oh, um, yeah, and you know, and I'm, I'm yeah. with you. They actually get better and better as time goes by. And I'm glad you think that, too. When you turn me on to Fables from a Mayfly, one of the elements that I found most compelling was Daryl Sutter, the vocalist. He would like reach these heights that Dan Kabinsky of D. Croyton would. And I right. find a lot of parallels in his work to Dan Kabinsky of D. Croyton. I don't know if he's influenced. I just think those guys both kind of like shoot really high with not only their like range, but the emotion of it. And, and I'm always, I'm going to be a sucker for that if I feel like it's genuine. And I think Daryl Sutter was. And then you add this like really eclectic, kind of like prog metal meets, you know, great alternative rock mix. They're one of the heavier bands that that we've talked about tonight. For sure. Yeah, I I think they're on the heavier end of the spectrum, you know, along with Deftones or Glassjaw. This is from their Arrows and Anchors album from 2011. I believe this is probably the most recent song on the entire list tonight. Unfortunately, they passed on after this album. They had a lot of financial problems, a lot of stuff related to just the horrible ugliness of the business, and they just decided to knock it on the head way too early. This is the longest snippet of the night as well. This is Fair to Midland, Golden Parachutes. Here they go, shaking in their boots. They'll be skipping stones with your bones when these eyes know when I find you steal
So fair to Midland, not a lot of output from them, but we completely endorse Fables from a Mayfly, Arrows and Anchors, and uh, even Interfunda Stifled, the uh, the self-titled album. I want to ask the namesake of Ginkor. Is Ginkor still alive? I think Ginkor will probably always be alive. Well, yeah, uh, because it, it's you know it's a, an expression of of various impulses, and, and is I mean I I would say that Ginkor was alive in the seventies. You know, you mentioned um, City Boy and uh, uh, Crack the Sky. Oh yeah, you know, I think there are probably bands from every era that embody the spirit of Ginkor. Um, and it is that it's a, it's a, it's an essence. Um, Very good. I mean, uh, I, I want to mention a, f- a few bands that we could have included that we didn't, um, just for time reasons. Circus Survive obviously came from the emo scene, but have released some amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, I, I'm a, I'm especially partial to the Blue Sky Noise album and the Desensus album. And Blue Sky Noise also produced by David Bottrell. David Bottrell, who we may be hearing about in a future episode. The band Jolly from New York City, who embrace a lot of 90s influences, um, just like Vinyl. This is a band that are no longer around either, but they embody Ginkor. What about Protest the Hero? Mm, I don't think so. Too metal? Uh, Well, yeah, and I mean, like, yeah, Protest the Hero is more like, I hear Protest the Hero is like like a metalcore band approaching Realm or something. (laughs) Realm, as in the, ba- the yeah, as in Milwaukee the Wisconsin, band? yeah, as in the yeah Wisconsin sort of pseudo tech thrash band. Golly, wow! When I first heard Fortress, I was like, "This band kind of sounds like kids listening to Realm for the first time." <laughs> See, I mean, seriously. Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a European approach to the vocals that are outside of Gincor. I would say too. I think you said it all about Ginkor being kind of universal. I'm glad you mentioned City Boy and Crack the Sky and that that just that general thing, the godly cream, 10cc approach to melting pot, but also being very focused, being, you know, both. That's, that's it. That, that's exactly it. Is it's, I think when you take Ginkor and distill it into one little phrase, it's that. It's, you know, like a, a really focused melting pot. Well, thanks for listening. I mean, not only to this episode, but the first 10 Radical Research episodes or any of the episodes you've ingested. Here's to the next 10 on the exhausting and hopefully illuminating way to 1,000. Episode number 11 will be a survey of the short but exciting output of Sweden's eclectic death metal freaks, Carbonized. Join us then. Peace the hell out. Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Rat.